I was wondering if you'd be uh, prepared to talk a bit about your health journey and your recovery uh, that you were talking about on the last call. Um, I think that's something that uh, people would find interesting to hear about. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, so uh, I presume you're talking about the cancer. Mm. Yeah, so uh, I used to work in... Um, IT and this is going back now to from 2002 to 2008 I was working for a small IT firm for Northern Rock uh, as a contractor in Northern Rock and towards the end it was at the time of the Northern Rock crash and all the contractors had to work from home uh, we we got booted out essentially so it was quite stressful we didn't know whether our the company I worked for was going to be able to survive or not without the Northern Rock work. Uh, but I started working from home and I started getting these headaches. Uh, it started off, it was when I was doing CrossFit, I would get a little really piercing headache after a, like stressful workouts, but just for a few seconds and then it would go. And then at home working in the office, I would just get this big fuzzy headache all over my skull and I think one day after a, a few weeks I got the start getting this double vision and it was weird I was looking at a lamppost outside and it started just splitting in two and that was a bit freaky and I had to basically call in sick a couple of times with a headache which is is not easy to do because <laughs> you you don't look like anything's wrong with you. I couldn't, you know, you just feel bad, but you don't know what's going on. I was wondering whether it was the light, changing lighting. We got blinds, did all sorts. Uh, but when the double vision came along, that was just a bit freaky. So I phoned my wife up and she came home and we made a, got an emergency appointment with the GP. And they basically said it was all stress. Uh, did some exams, stuff like that, gave me a bunch of tablets. You'll be fine. Yeah, the Northern Rock stuff's happened. Yeah, it just be, it just, there's some mic relief. I wasn't convinced, but went home. You don't want it to be anything else. Um, we actually mentioned, he said, you don't seem convinced, the GP. And it's like, what have you seen? Well, on NHS Direct, progressively worsening headaches and double vision came up with some fairly nasty things one of which was a brain tumor uh, and he just laughed oh no they're incredibly rare they're incredibly rare don't worry don't worry bloody bloody blah and I was thinking well I actually know of five people at this moment in time who have either died or have brain tumors that are close to me three or four of them in the squash world so that rarity seemed a bit weird anyway I took the tablets um, they made me groggy. The double vision lasted for about a week. And then it did eventually go. So I thought, okay, maybe. But then over the following six months, I would have relapses of headaches and double vision. And I got to the stage thinking, well, if this, I stopped taking the tablets because they made me like a zombie. I thought, if this is stress, I need to get, maybe I need to get away from work. So I asked my boss for a sabbatical. Uh, a friend of mine was doing a ski season, uh, doing ski instructor course. So I spoke to me, my wife. 
how do you feel about me buggering off for three months? Don't think she was too happy, but she said yes. Um, and so I booked this ski season and, and really looking forward to it. A mate of mine was doing it. But the headaches started coming back big time before I went out. Um, got out there and it, it was good, enjoying it. About a week and a half, I was really struggling with the lights in the evening. Uh, the headaches weren't so bad. Did a double vision when I got tired. So uh, this led me to believe uh, uh, maybe it is stress. Um, but now that I'm out here, am I stressing about that I won't have a job when I get back and all this sort of stuff? And then one day I had double vision all day long and it was one of the toughest days skiing I've ever done. I don't know if you lose your depth perception. So trying to like uh, moguls and bumps and dips. But I, I concentrated so hard, I actually skied the best I had. Uh, but I was mentally exhausted by the end of the day. And I, on a really simple green run on the way back, I took a big bang. Didn't see a dip fell, bashed my head, really painful, went to bed, woke up the next day, double vision was fixed. And that was a bit weird that I'd never, I'd never woken up with it. So I stayed in bed all day, loads of paracetamols. Next day, same thing, hot footed it to the doctor, told the doctor everything. And then he said, listen, I don't want to worry you. But with everything you've told me, I think you need to go to the hospital now immediately to get a scan. And here's the letter. Off you go. So I managed to get a couple of guys, one to drive me and one who spoke French to, to translate. Got the scan. We were there for several hours. Then the doctor comes through and basically says, um, we found a nodule in your head. Uh, I think the English word for it is tumour. And that was in January 2000. Yeah, thinking back, it was quite a... I wasn't surprised. Part of me was relieved. I'm not a, like a stress bunny. It wasn't psychosomatic. Well, psychosomatic's another thing. It might have been because that's like stress leading to physical manifestations. But I wasn't going mad. You know, it was... Yeah. And I just thought at that time, I'm I'm too young to die. I haven't done what I want to do yet. Those were some of the first words that cropped into my head. So essentially, people rallied round. They got a flight back for us. Wife got uh, an appointment sorted with a doctor. I won't go through all the inadequacies at the time, but it was basically got into treatment. And I started researching. I mean, they wanted to do more scans. Um, and one of the first things I came across, I just Googled fighting cancer. And I came across this American site that talked about they had a psychometric assessment that was, they believed was very, people who scored highly on this had a much better prognosis than those who didn't. And they had very strong correlations. And it was all about knowing what your cancer was, taking positive action, being actively involved with your treatment. And I think that was, for me, that was one of the best things I could have come across. I was like, I didn't know because they couldn't determine what it was for ages and we had to get second opinions. But because I was pushing and, and taking active knowledge, 
I was doing all my own research when we we got what information we did. When I, I got the first diagnosis, which was then slightly changed, uh, it was first diagnosed as osteosarcoma of the sphenoid bone. That's where the temple bones go through. And the, if you draw a line through my nose there, there's a big butterfly bone called the sphenoid bone, which roots all the, the nerves from the brain to the face. Arteries come up from the body to the brain. Um, very close to the brain stem and it's just underneath the, the base so it's like the base of the skull yeah osteosarcoma which is very rare uh and where it was my oncologist said there's maybe one uh, maybe five a year in britain uh, of that location and that type they then refined their diagnosis to mfh malignant fibrous histiocytoma which is basically a bucket for stuff they didn't really understand. Mm -hmm. uh, the second opinion from a, a consultant up in Scotland, undifferentiated pleomorphic sarcoma. Um, no staging because it's too rare, but essentially, yeah, a rare thing. The treatment for all of those was the same though. Uh, six cycles are very aggressive. Um, chemotherapy, cisplatin, doxorubicin, and high dosage methotrexate. Um, yeah, it was pretty grim. But I, at that stage, I just thought, I'm going to take everything I can, everything I can, whilst carrying on researching. They forgot the, they forgot the anti-sickness medication on my first two cycles, so I was vomiting like crazy, and... It took us a few years to get over the smells that the like institutionalized food would make me vomit. Just the smell coming up to it, the chemo would make me vomit. Once you start, it was like a CrossFit workout. Vomit each minute on the minute for half an hour. <laughs> <laughs> it was pretty grim. Um, when they got that sorted, that was cool. Um, I was fortunate in that I was still physically capable and we managed to control the pain with morphine. Again, a lot of issues, don't want to go into too much of that, but it was just with the man talking to the doctors, that was the biggest difficulty, the biggest stress I had really, bizarrely, was actually communication. Um, but things started improving through the treatment or it seemed so. Um, although from a scan's point of view, they said there wasn't really any improvement. Uh, my symptoms of double vision were improving. Uh, I would, every morning I'd walk, wait, wake up, go to the mirror in the bathroom. And then the further away I could get without there being double vision was an improvement for me. And mm. so that was, I did that every morning. Um, I would do little CrossFit workouts in the TV room attached to my drip stand, press-ups, sit-ups, squats. I would be up and down the stairs. I got bollock loads. Excuse me, I shouldn't swear, but yeah, I got told off loads for going off campus with my drip stand. Um, it, was a, it was a hard but almost, yeah, bizarrely, dare I say enjoyable eight months of chemotherapy in that I knew I had to build relationships. Um, I think because relationships became more important, 
you know, people who weren't paying attention to you, you know, have friends drift apart, are too busy, this, that and the other. Um, I knew that I needed as much social support as I could get. And the first two cycles, I was in one hospital and everyone from the tri club that I was part of would come and visit at hospital. We had um, on Friday nights, we had something called Friday Night Cancer Club when I was at home. Um, it was just come around and let's keep company. I think it was difficult for my ex-wife. Um, you know, she, she dealt with things differently, but for me, it was really, really invaluable. But then I moved hospitals and it was difficult for them to get across to that hospital. And it, it was dire sitting in hospital all day long with people literally dying all around you. Um, I emailed my squash club. I told them, my squash teams, and I'd emailed the chairman. <laughs> and I was thinking that he would let everybody know. And I didn't hear anything from them for two or three months. And it was like, what's what's wrong so i basically emailed everyone and like 90 people and i had to do it in three or four different emails because i kept getting reaching uh recipient limits uh, when i did that all of a sudden i started getting all these emails oh we didn't know this that and the other and it was like and i, I got in touch with the chairman again and he just said oh I, yeah I, I didn't want I didn't think you'd want to be bothered you know you're going through this really stressful thing so I only told one or two people and I was like no I want the world to know because and basically people would say you know what can we do for you this that and the other and I said come and visit that's mm. that's the best thing you can do and and so I saw loads and loads of friends family um and then on my weeks out of hospital, that was literally 50% in, 50% out over the eight, eight nine months. Um, friends would come and visit. Uh, I had times where I had to be in isolation because your immune system drops. Uh, that being said, I did manage to get permission from my registrar to go to Malta for a friend's 40th. Um, which again, I just decided I wasn't going to hide away. I was going to do what I can. Being as physical and being socially connected was as important as the, the treatment I was getting. That was the view I took. And as I say, I made steady progress with the, the symptoms, although the fitness side of things was interesting. You know, from cycle one, I was still able to do things. By cycle four or five, I was having to stop and have a break to walk up the stairs. Mm. Uh, so that was really interesting. Um, and then, but how quickly that would change with a blood transfusion. So I had to get a blood, a couple of blood transfusions and I noticed an instant increase in my ability to do anything. So I made a mental note of that and then basically sent them a registrar when I finish, can I get a blood transfusion at the end of my cycles? Because that's going to speed up my recovery so much more. And uh, he managed to wangle that whether I don't, I don't know how that worked, but um, I did a lot of research during that time. That's all, well, between that and watching nine series of X-Files, five series of The Shield, <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and numerous others, a um, mm. lot of research. And I had a decision to make. 
I was due to, I couldn't have surgery uh, because of where the tumor is. My optical chiasm is in the middle of the tumor. Um, radiotherapy, I was told there was a 20 to 50% chance of going blind. Um, they could map it all. I, I did all the, the, the prep work for the radiotherapy, but then when the consequences came down, I, I just, no, I'm not having the radiotherapy. They, they're giving me, basically, I could have gone blind any time up to two years, they reckon, but I might not even be alive that long. And it would also destroy my pituitary gland, so I would need hormone treatment for everything. And I knew a couple of people who needed thyroid treatment where they were on thyroxine, and they were having a hellish time with depression, ballooning weight, stuff like that. And I thought, well, they can't get it right with one hormone, and it's going to be every hormone for me. I didn't want to do that. Um, I had arranged with the friend, the coach, the, the coach who was also a very good friend at the tri club, that if I did have the radiotherapy, I started to say, will you be my blind cycling partner? Can we do blind tandem riding or whatever? Uh, I was just thinking of ways, what things that I had to see in my future that would give my body a reason for staying alive. And I don't know where that came from. I, I, I really don't know. But I had this strong belief that if I had a reason for getting better, then I would get better. Um, I decided against the radiotherapy, but there was a, with sarcomas, typically there's a strong likelihood of return, uh, especially in the limbs that, and that may be slightly different for mine because of where it is. But because of that, I decided I need to look at lifestyle stuff. And that was really where the journey started for where I've come from since then. A patient, another fellow patient, Bob Welford, who's unfortunately dead now, but he gave me a book called Anti-Cancer, A New Way of Life, um, written by a guy called Dr. David Servan Schreiber. Um, he was, a, I think, a psychiatrist who basically got diagnosed with a brain tumour, went through all the standard treatment, um, did okay for a couple of years, but then it all came back. And then he decided, listen, I've done everything right according to medicine, and it the same things happened. So then he decided to do research across everything that he could find, you know, observational stuff, animal research, this, that, and the other, and came across... Yeah, he basically partitioned it into three different things, nutrition, exercise and mind. Uh, and this was where I really started digging into all of this stuff and made massive changes to my diet. I cut out refined flours, uh, sugars and seed oils, vegetable oils. Um, and that was fascinating because from when I did that, this was before I got to an alternative protocol, but even just cutting those out and sticking to meat and vegetables. And I got managed to get friends and family to cook all my food for me, even when I was in hospital and they would bring it in and I could get it heated up. Um, the way it started just, it was, it was really fascinating. I felt really good just on the food. And after my treatment, I put on a lot of weight during treatment because of the steroids. But then afterwards, I carried on eating this way whilst researching for a proper 
anti-cancer protocol and already there were differences in terms of losing weight and stuff like that um and then i i had a the decision around the radiotherapy this is where i really i, I didn't want to go blind um and, and total respect to people who've had to be blind from birth and people who've gone blind and, and what you do and everything but I just couldn't see my life being blind and I, I didn't want to do it. So despite all the ideas about blind cycling and this, that and the other, that I, I would have, I would be totally dependent on other people for a lot of time. That's, I made the decision to research for alternatives. I went to a local cancer support group that had a really good library. They set me up with an EFT practitioner on the day, emotional freedom technique. And within an hour from being in a blind panic, I was cool as a cucumber. I knew exactly what I was going to do. And so that introduced me to energy medicine. Uh, and, you know, this was tapping on acupressure points, EFT. Um, so I went and studied that. Um, I decided on a protocol called the Budwig Protocol. Uh, Joanna Budwig was a German scientist in the 50s who worked for the government in um, what <laughs> I seem to remember being termed the Ministry of Fats, but I'm sure that's not right. Um, but she was, um, she discovered how to differentiate different types of fats, so polyunsaturated, saturated, etc. Mm -hmm. uh, and the the technology to be able to differentiate between those. And she subscribe to the Otto Warburg theory uh, where if oxygen levels drop below in a cell that cell becomes cancerous and, and essentially reverts to anaerobic metabolism and it can no longer use aerobic metabolism and she saw that as related to the fats in the system the the protocol was predominantly vegetarian but with a, a lot of what she, a, cottage cheese or in germany you get this stuff called quark <coughs> it's a uh, curd cheese and that was blended with flax oil and then you could have it with fruits maybe a bit of honey um i used to have honey and cocoa and berries and on this protocol the protocol also included sunlight i needed to get 40 minutes of sunlight a day um i needed to look at emotional trauma things that might have happened uh, and for me there were issues uh, certainly relationship issues I'd had over the years and I think also potentially to the way I felt as um, this came out subsequently to uh, ADHD I was emotionally very very reactive to a lot of things in life uh, and I think that played its part um, steadily though my every single health parameter on this protocol improved i dropped from 14 and three quarters stone to 11 stone in a year and a half um so you know pretty much every predictor of heart disease of obesity of diabetes they all improved my blood pressure was yeah one 115 117 over 70 75 i started running i was looking into things like grounding i wasn't working i was really lucky i was maybe doing five ten hours a week in the local gym uh, a friend who ran the gym said you know come 
come and use it and we I'd done my personal training qualification so I started doing some work there and for about yeah that whole protocol was really really good it was vegetarian and and at the time I really had gone down that road of uh, seeing studies that the China study by Colin Campbell saying that you know animal protein was cancerous um a lot of Pretty much everything in the alternative cancer world at the time was saying be vegetarian, um, and I followed it for a couple of years. But there was stuff written by Budwick, um, and she actually said, you know, meat per se isn't bad; it's just farmed meat. And she said, if you eat, if you can eat wild meat, that that would be okay. So that sort of that made sense to me, you know. I I couldn't see a time like an ancestral I'd, I'd got into crossfit and paleo just prior to cancer and so i'd gone down and started going down the paleo road and that made sense to me um and so I, I i struggled with thinking i could be vegetarian for life and i love my meat um so eventually i started eating meat um yeah and, and with with seemingly little consequence at the time but then interestingly, I got into the Ray Peak stuff that you talked mm. about. And one of the things that had happened with me, one thing I had noticed, I, I lost a lot of weight over time. Um, and we're probably now getting to the stage beyond cancer where we're getting to like four years in. Um, my hair was falling out. It was thinning. Mm. Um, people were starting to say, you look too skinny. Um, I was doing... And by this time, I'd started intermittent fasting as well. And I'd, I'd got on to, um, oh, what's his name? Austrian or Eastern European guy, Ori Hoffman. He did the warrior diet, one meal a day. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know who you mean. I can't remember the name. Yeah, exactly I, lo I loved a lot of what he did, but he got done for selling fake uh, grass-fed protein, whey protein. Uh, he got found out on that. Mm. Um, but I loved a lot of what he, he, he did. Um, but people were saying, you know, you're not, you're not looking great now. Mm. Um, and my body temperature, this was a key thing. This is where the Ray Pete stuff came in. My waking body temperature was about 35.1. And I was like, and I know a lot of issues have been caused by the chemo. A lot of my veins, uh, blood vessels are being pretty much destroyed. Um, and I've been very cold for a long time. But this was four or five years down the line and I started reading, I came across this article, um, guy, I think Matt Stone was his name. Um, and he was talking about metabolism and he had books like Eat for Heat and stuff like that. And so the, if, you, if your hair was thinning, if your nails were breaking, my fingernails were breaking the whole time, my skin was dry and scaly, uh, I was always cold. Um, and they said this was a damaged metabolism and that you needed to eat well i took this needing to eat to the extreme <laughs> and i just piled into anything and everything um and ended up putting on about two stone in two months it was crackers wow. mm. um which wasn't great and i i was starting to eat late at night i, I started working again I, I then started so that was a big issue and then for the next life got bit pear-shaped after that I had a lot of issues that weren't cancer related so I ended up going through divorce bankruptcy homelessness 
And so it was like survival during that time. But yeah, in terms of the cancer, that was that was it. Conventional treatment, but then looked very much into the food. Didn't have the surgery, didn't have the radiotherapy, followed an alternative protocol. And that really sort of opened my eyes to so many things. Sunshine, earthing, social connection. So many of these things that are coming out in the, the research today now. And I also came across um, ketogenic diets as well. And that was the thing. Can you starve the cancer of sugar? Um, mm. I didn't get on well with ketogenic at the time, though. Uh, it was just I didn't understand keto flu and I had no energy. And I was trying to do CrossFit. And like, where do you get your fats from? Because if you're vegetarian and, and keto, it's it's like that's yeah. not it's not fun. D and didn't make sense. Well. No. So I I'd never really bought into it. And then there was still a lot of it's a fad. It's this, that or the other. And there was the the repeat version of it's starvation. Um, but since the, the last few months, been researching carnivore and mm. keto and and now that makes much more sense to me um and it's interesting i again i've gone up in weight but i've come down to the same weight i was at, after three or four years on budwick but nobody's saying i look ill the majority of people are saying you look well i'm fit i'm more muscular I, i've been training slightly differently although i was doing a lot of training back then as well so it's a it's been yeah different experience in terms of the, the two transformations and, and now the commonality though was cutting out refined flour mm. well any any of that processed flours really uh vegetable oils and and sugars that those are the commonalities and you know at the moment i wouldn't say to anyone don't eat vegetables I have my own views that are beginning to firm towards how many I should have or what, which ones. Um, but I've been pretty strict carnivore now for five going on six months. And I wouldn't say it's perfect, but I'm enjoying the results, the long-term results. Uh, yeah. And go on, sorry. It's, yeah, it's, it sounds like you, you left no stone unturned. Um, you, you got some some positive results from the conventional treatment, but um, you felt like there was more to be done, more to explore, and some aspects of the conventional treatment you just didn't want to go ahead with. But um, you mentioned a lot of things in there which uh, were interesting that I'd like to pick up on. But yeah, one yeah. in particular, you said um, you said that you were quite emotionally reactive, and you felt like that played a part. Um, yeah, could mm. you explain that a bit more? What what were you thinking there? So, see quite a lot of articles and stuff I read and the fact that Budwig had talked about emotional trauma. And I think in our last conversation, we talked about, uh, I can't remember the guy's name, but he, Matt. Mm. Yeah, uh, he could see things in brain scans that he uh, says relates to trauma. Um I think leading up the the four years leading up to my diagnosis, I was going through a rough time in my my marriage, and I would basically stew on things. We'd have a it would be the wrong look or the wrong comment in the morning, and for the rest of the day, I was having a dark 
conversation stroke argument stroke visualizing the worst possible outcomes for everything um and i felt awful the whole time doing that you know physically awful um in the years prior i i, I took relationship breaks up breakups very badly um yeah a lot of screaming shouting throwing things in empty rooms not at people but it was like i was always felt very emotional as a, as a child my parents used to fight a lot and they i think so there is an element that comes from that and learned behavior but just how strong my emotions felt and if i ever have a, an argument with anybody it's like really really difficult to make up or has been in the past and to think you know the feelings were so strong of this is it i can never talk to you again and like yeah how can we be so different and i just so there's been that history through my life and i think that time then not being able to switch that off and the, the mental processing of regurgitating painful situations over and over and just revisiting that trauma that upset um i think there's there's been two breakups in my life uh prior to getting married which were particularly upsetting for me and i just drank myself into oblivion i would work in this pub and I'd have a great time whilst I was with people, but I'd end up drinking. It was after hours drinking and the staff got free drinks. And then I'd walk home for two miles, bawling my eyes out because all the stuff about this relationship would come up. And then I'd sit listening to, you know, breakup songs, you know, for the next three hours at home, or, you know. And I went through this for you know a year or two with each of these two relationships so yeah just an aside interestingly the alcohol messes with your your dream sleep which is your potentially your therapeutic healing <laughs> um and and so this is one of the reasons i believe it took so long for me to get over this stuff i've come across subsequently um the alcohol is the worst friend you can have in terms of trying to get over emotional trauma um, but luckily I got into meditation um, fairly shortly after cancer due to the um, the anti-cancer book. They talked about mindfulness programs in America. So I sought out the meditation. And once I got into meditation, I started getting a handle on the emotional side of things. And it seems like there were, I was different people. And my, my wife at the time actually said that when I came back from the meditation course, you're, you're a different person. You're just everything about you is different. Um, and then I read The Chimp Paradox, which I think we talked about last time, yeah. and that idea of the, the chimp brain, uh, you know, our emotional and survival center, and the human brain, the prefrontal cortex, where we have empathy and we can think rationally and we can inhibit impulses. And all of that and, and we have compassion and empathy um understanding that alongside the the seed that budwiger planted that emotional trauma can play a part um and then book uh, i think a book uh, molecules of emotion by candice pert that for every thought we have whatever a thought is that there's a neurotransmitter or some form of neurochemical 
that influences our blood chemistry. And if you listen to Bruce Lipton, blood chemistry is the environment for the cell, which basically acts as the the trigger, the, 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 the epigenetics to genetics, how the the cells will respond in a given situation. And we can change that with our blood chemistry. And then that connection that a thought changes your blood chemistry. And we know it, we feel horrible. Yeah, you think of something nasty, yeah, something that makes you want to be sick. You can think of something that makes you physically sick without having to ingest it. So we know that, that the mind is so powerful. It was just, it made perfect sense to me that that all that mental darkness and trauma I put myself through played a big part, maybe not in causing the cancer, but creating an environment that allowed the cancer to flourish. And the big thing about the, the Budwig protocol was that it wasn't that cancer was something that happened to you. It was that your life, the way it had been lived, led to an environment that cancer thrived in. So it was a bit like tending a garden. If you don't tend the garden well, you don't water your plants and you, you know, I, I like the biodiversity, you, you know, you, you, you look after the, the, the garden in a way that you don't have weeds and you get the plants that you want growing and stuff like that. If you don't tend it well, then the weeds take over. If you don't water it, your plants die. If it doesn't get adequate sunshine, they, they die. Um, and that creates this environment where disease can take hold. You mentioned um, also um, that cancer cells require anaerobic metabolism, I think you said. Um, yeah. Is that something that can be affected? I don't know if you'll know the answer to this, but um, how, is, can that be affected by how you're breathing? Um, the oxygenation yeah. of your blood? Yeah. So that, that's fascinating. Um I don't know per se as a scientist, because I'm not a scientist, but that actually was one of the things that I led to was something because oxygen therapy was a big thing as an alternative for cancer. Um, but one of the issues with oxygen therapy is you can get oxygen into the blood, but do you get it from the blood to the cells? And the suggestion was, well, th there's no reason for it to get there, you know, th there's there needs to be a way and, and this is where I came across Buteyko breathing hmm. um, and it was a Russian scientist um, or doctor Dr. Artur Rakimov he has a website normalbreathing.com and he talked about the idea that you, you need to be able to one get the oxygen into your lungs and then it transfers into the blood but you need adequate levels of carbon dioxide, which comes from aerobic cellular metabolism to to get the oxygen to let go, uh, the, the hemoglobin, the red blood cells to let go of the oxygen to then go to where those cells where the carbon dioxide was coming from. So I actually used a training mask. I thought I had one, but it's basically a mask that goes over here and you strap around your face. Um, and it increases, you basically rebreathe carbon dioxide, it increases the, the, the what they call the dead space in, in, so that you don't exhale all of the carbon dioxide. And that allows you to take more oxygen from each breath. Um, and it also allows that the higher your carbon dioxide tolerance allows more oxygen to transfer from the blood then to the tissues. So in terms of 
the Budwig theory is you're creating an environment where more oxygen is available. So potentially, yes, is what I like to think. Um, it, it certainly makes sense from a physiology. If it was about restoring order to the body, if I got to the stage where I was continually stressing, I, my sugar was available everywhere. And that was potentially how I was fueling myself the whole time. I was eating loads of sugars and carbs. Um, I was overweight. You know, there were so many other things that were wrong. I wasn't sleeping well. So all my, you know, I would go to bed late at night and my circadian rhythms were all out. So, yes, breathing was definitely one of the ways to start putting that environment in order uh, in two ways. The oxygenation we've just talked about and um, anyone who wants to look that up, if they look at the Bohr effect, B-O-H-R, E-F-F-E-C-T, and they talk about the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve, which is essentially how easy it is for the red blood cells to let go of oxygen. The more carbon dioxide it is, the easier it is for them to let go. There, there are other knock-on effects, though, because carbon dioxide is a, is a vasodilator. So things like blood pressure improve. The, you, you can put you into a, a more parasympathetic nervous system state. So rest and recover as opposed to fight and flight. Um, and so, again, part of it, and I think if we think about things like meditation, I think a lot of the effects of meditation, not all of them, but a lot of them come from the fact that we slow down our breathing. And some meditations will give you guidance on deeper belly breathing, diaphragmatic breathing, uh, which is, you know, we, we need these times to be in this recovery place where we're not stressed, we're not fight or flight the whole time. And, and, and so breathing an amazing tool um, and definitely very a big part of the the stuff that helped me get to where I am difficult to quantify how much yeah. but there's there's enough physiology there in the textbooks for me to believe that it had an impact mm. yeah so circling back to diet then perhaps so um are you aware of paleo medicine I think they've been treating people with uh, different types of cancer for about 10 years using essentially a um, carnivore diet. I believe when they started off, it was um, more of a paleo diet, but they've actually narrowed that down to a, a meat and fat, 20% protein, 80% wow. fat diet. And they seem to be getting good results. Um, they publish That's a few case studies. Um, brilliant. And they, they don't seem, to, as far as I'm aware, to... Um, to do anything else they just focus on that particular mm -hmm. diet that high high fat um carnivore diet that includes some organs as well um yeah i was wondering if you're aware of them or perhaps what were your reasons for gravitating towards carnivore i'm not aware of, well I, I i think you mentioned them last time in our talk uh, i haven't haven't seen any of their stuff um and I, i'm really happy to hear that because it sort of backs where I've ended up coming to in terms of my opinions. Um, why did I gravitate to carnivore? It started as an experiment. I've always liked meat. Um, I put on earlier on this year, uh, I put on a lot of weight and I wanted to get rid of it quickly. 
because uh, it was such a struggle. I, I, you know, I'd managed for a year to get down to 12 stone, but I knew I could be a stone or two lighter, but it's plateaued and I was just really struggling. And my food was here, there and everywhere. Um, going back to work, the, the type of work I do is the hours are all over the shop. So it's really difficult to get into a nice system. Um, I've been following Keegan and Ben Patrick on ATG and Ben Patrick had mentioned his food. One of it, he did a half hour video on the food he eats, which was just meat and then fruits at the end of the day. Uh, and he mentioned this thing about vegetables being poisonous. And I, I had come across this before and I I bought into the line, well, it's hormetic, you know, a little bit of stress does you a bit of good. That's the other, you know, we were the right size to benefit, whereas insects were, you know, or little small animals might be put off because the the effects would be worse. So they wouldn't eat the plants. And of course, vegetables have been a massive part of my treatment uh, in my alternative protocol. It was a vegetarian diet. Um, but it was interesting, my hair falling out and the other things like Dr. Chafee talked about plants being a natural chemotherapy and that sort all of a sudden that really uh, resonated with me because during my actual chemotherapy, all my hair fell out. And then being vegetarian for a couple of years and my hair starts thinning and that literally I could pull out handfuls in the shower. Um, and then this idea that, that well, actually all of these toxins can act as a natural chemotherapy and that's maybe why in in some protocols vegetarian stuff has worked well with cancer because it's been a medicine and it targets the cancer cells and the cancer cells are vulnerable more vulnerable than the the non-cancerous cells which is basically how conventional chemotherapy works it's like can we kill the cancer cell before we kill the human cell and so there'd been that seed. I saw a video on protein sparing modified fast to lose weight really quickly, improve your power to weight ratio, best way to improve athleticism. And I wanted to do that for my squash and my coaching. So I did that and that was lean protein. I did that for three weeks and I lost three quarters of a stone, the three quarters of stone that I put on. And I thought, wow, this is interesting. Um, and then started coming across references to carnivore and interestingly around carnivore uh, I follow, I started following doctors uh, Dr. Chafee, Dr. Sean Baker, Dr. Com uh, Ken Berry uh, then a few others who weren't medically trained but they'd had amazing transformations and I, I always read the comments because whilst they're anecdotal, if I want to buy a book or I want to follow a methodology, I want to see people coming online and saying this has worked for them. Mm. And I think you just, I don't know whether these people are just saying it, you know, for a book review, for instance, there's a, there's an incentive for an author to get friends to put positive book reviews on, but on a YouTube channel for someone who's just saying, go and eat meat. By the way, I don't sell meat. I just think you should eat meat. And then literally hundreds of anecdotes on every one of these channels of people who'd lost several stone, whose blood pressure had come 
lockdown, who'd overcome autoimmune disorders, uh, all of these things, I just thought, this there's too, too many, 5,000 housewives can't be wrong, is the old saying when I was growing up. Um, and so I, I, I decided to dig in. I read The Carnivore Code by Paul Saladino. I read uh, The Carnivore Bible, I think it is, by Sean Baker. Um, I read loads of articles and, and they started giving all the physiology and the science in response to the vegetarian argument. And a lot of the research from the vegetarian side is based on observational studies, very few randomized control studies that actually came out with the results that they talked about. Fiber was another thing. And so I thought, well, I'm going to carry on the experiment. I'll finish off the month. Okay, it's going well. Um, started coming across people who, like Anthony Chafee, played rugby as a carnivore. Sean Baker's competing in powerlifting as a carnivore. Started hearing stories of top-level athletes who were doing it, thinking, well, this is great. I love my meat. Don't get me wrong, I like my vegetables too. I, I did actually get to really quite enjoy vegetables. But this idea of the healing power of meat, which is not often talked about, I started noticing within about six weeks, my, I mentioned emotional reactivity before. Mm. Well, my, my mood swings totally went. I can, um, uh, I can attest to that myself as well. Um, yeah. Did you feel the same? I, I, I was brought up on a very high carbohydrate, lots of fruit, lots of vegetables, moderate protein diet. And it was a pretty good diet um, compared to how a lot of people eat nearly all home-cooked food, so no complaints there. But one issue I had from a kid was just uh, up and down blood sugar levels, even from when I was really yeah. young. Uh, constant hunger. Um, and, yeah, kids are hungry a lot, yeah. obviously. They're, they're growing. They've got massive energy needs. But this is, this is the kind of hunger where you're losing your temper, you're getting ratty, yeah. you just have, you have to eat. Nothing else matters apart from getting some food yeah. in. Uh, and that... Um, you know, you'd think that maybe that's something that you grow out of, but that continued with me really yeah. into adult life. Um, yeah. Then I discovered more of a, a low carb approach um, and it got a lot better. Um, but I was mostly doing a kind of cyclical low carb diet where I probably would eat some carbs most mm -hmm. days, probably just once. So I was never really long term in, in ketosis maybe just a little ketosis, yeah. a lower level of it. Um, it wasn't until I went really high fat that I noticed um, like a significant shift of things which I would react to before. Just didn't feel the same need to react. It would come yeah. up on my radar and I'd think that would have annoyed me not long, yeah. not long ago. <laughs> and yeah. it's just the change, just the change, I think, of getting you know, that higher level of fat. I've been experimenting recently with eating around 70, 80% fat. Mm -hmm. I've been doing a mostly carnivore diet for probably about two years. Um, as I mentioned to you earlier, I did take a break from that and go along the bioenergetic um, point of view for a little while, gave that a five-month stint. And for me, that was the last nail in the coffin of eat, eating carbs. So I gave it a go. I listened to all of their arguments. And the, I think the guys in that field do put across some pretty compelling, well-reasoned arguments. But for me personally, eating carbohydrate um, 
no, I just can't have those blood sugar ups and downs. Plus, I gained some weight as well. Yeah. Um, not the good kind of weight. Um, <laughs> so, I think that's. Uh, I think that's fascinating. I think um, I'm going to have to go fairly shortly, but sure. I'd, I'd love love to maybe on a return call pick up your research that experiment into the bioenergetics and the carbs because the ray peat is something i've dabbled in as well and again very convincing arguments but just going back to what you were saying about picking up on you know getting angry yeah and i talked about it, it made me think of the, the emotionally reactive side of things and um, how often was that because my blood sugars were mm. unstable and like you said, I didn't grow out of it. So I remember when I was about to get married, I got some advice from a friend. Don't ever have an argument when you're hungry. And he called it hangry. And we used to yep. joke about it. We, you know, to this day, we joke about our hangry arguments. And I remember one time we were coming back from the, the Lake District and I just totally spat my dummy out and said, you don't effing give a shit about me. I've told you I'm effing hungry. Just stop the effing car. I'm going to get out, get some effing mm. food. And once I had my food, I was fine. Mm. And then I think in, well, since I've been on carnivore, the one time I lost my rag was actually on Father's Day. We went out for a meal and that was the one night I had carbs. Um, so I've had, you know, and it was like, I lost my rag the next morning with mum um, and everything else aside of that, the same situations. No, uh, I get frustrated and still feel it. I think the fat you mentioned, uh, I think that's a big difference because I felt doing the lean countdown diet with uh, Keegan and Oncom, my mood has been lower. Mm. Um, and I think it's because I haven't been having adequate fat. Um, yeah, and and so I'm taking a break from that now and up in the fat, and, and that's... I don't enjoy the very lean carnivore diet at all. No. To me, that that no. does not feel good. Um, I know people do do it as a quick weight loss tool, but um, yeah, yeah, that's that's not for me. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, maybe there's something we'll talk about a bit more next time. Um, yeah, I think there's a uh, a lot of things that we could uh, a lot of different avenues we could go down with this one. Yeah, uh, yeah, we've been on for just over an hour. So thank, yeah, thanks very much for sharing everything. Um, really interesting to hear that story. Uh, I think um, people will be interested to to hear that. Well, thank you for giving me the opportunity. Um, as you can tell, I love talking. So, uh, and but I do believe, <laughs> I do believe this is information that more people should at least be exposed to. Not telling them what to do, but to know that there is a different way out there. For sure, yeah, it's it gives people something to consider, doesn't it? And another yeah. avenue of inquiry if they're so minded. Brilliant.